dumb jerk. You'd be kicked in the head. Who'd arrived in Frankenstein? I am skinny and ugly and my hair is red. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. I'm cutting your head. I'm cutting your head. From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett. And this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, a new podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. In our first series, we'll focus on one of the most important and enduring sketch comedy troupes of the last 50 years, The Kids in the Hall. We'll explore the story behind the kids and their groundbreaking show that ran for five seasons on your CBC, their creativity, triumphs, and missteps, and how the group's iconoclastic approach to sketch comedy may have hurt them in the short term, but could be the key to their enduring appeal. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is coming bi-weekly starting November 2nd. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Minute Women Podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we have another jam-packed Heritage Minute to unpack. So I hope you're ready. I hope, I hope everyone is so prepared. Because I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm focused. Because we're doing one of my favorite Heritage Minutes oh my God. today. Oh my God. We're going to do Expo 67. Oh, hell yeah, we are. I love that Heritage Minute oh so much. Oh my God, much. it's so good. We're going to take it from here and we'll put it, it out there. there. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically the Heritage Minute about um, the construction or expansion of two islands yeah. in the process of Montreal hosting the World's Fair in 1967. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those Heritage Minutes where they're just like, it's going to be in black and white so people know it's the past. Yeah. And they're all dressed up in their 1960s suits and they love it. Looking adorable. Love it. And we're going to go it. all into that. We're also going to go into kind of like the history of the World's Fair. Cool. Because it's not really a thing that happens anymore. No. Nope. From my understanding. I can't remember the last time there was a World's Fair. 67. <laughs> that was <laughs> the last one. That was it. <laughs> they put two islands together and then it was done. <laughs> like, we can't trump this. Yeah. So, we're done. <laughs> Name a baseball team after it and call it a day. Call it a day. <laughs> so, the World's Fair is a large international exhibition which is designed to showcase achievements of nations. These exhibitions vary in character and are held at different parts of the world at specific sites for a period of time, usually ranging between three and six months. Yeah, it's a long, long time. The term World's Fair is typically used by the United States. Basically everywhere else, particularly in France, um, they use the term Exposition Universelle, or like Universal Exhibition. Okay. Hence, Expo 67, yeah. not World's Fair 1967. This is used by all the other like romance languages, so, like in Spanish and Italian, Romanian, I guess. Romanian um, is a romance language, who knew? <laughs> who knew? In other parts of the world, outside Europe, um, World Expo or Specialized Expo are used as terms. Okay. So maybe they've just been going on under different names. Okay. Disney World. Disney World <laughs> is actually the longest The American term. <laughs> expo. <laughs> The short-term expo has been applied to several uh, in various locations since 1967. Okay. Oh, so there's been more. Can you guess when the first World's Fair was? 19... No. 18... No. 
1764. No, 1791. Okay. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. I was definitely going to go with like 1902. Because the first one I always had heard about was the Paris one. Yeah. Probably because the Paris crew heritage minute, which you should go listen to our episode on. So good. In 1791, Prague organized the first World's Fair, and it was in Bohemia, which today is the modern-day Czech Republic. Oh, okay. The first industrial exhibition was the showcase, kind of like the coronation of Leopold II as king of Bohemia. So, like, we have this new king. What do we do? We show them our trains. Yeah. We've done it. (laughs) (laughs) I am legit. I promise. (laughs) Quick. Quick, the trains. (laughs) And it celebrated the considerable sophistication of manufacturing methods in Czech lands during that period of time. Wow, fancy. So initially, they're organized basically to be like, look, we built all this cool stuff. Aren't you proud of me? The French tradition of national exhibitions, a tradition that culminated with the French Industrial Exposition held in 1844, which was in Paris. This fair was followed by other national exhibitions in Europe. So at this time, they're not organized. It's just countries being like, I'm going to have a big exhibition I'm of everything have a I'm fair. doing. Yeah. No, I'm going to have a fair. Exactly. Uh, And they're not really unified until 1951, which was under the title Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations. All Um, of them. Every single one. (laughs) The World Expo was held in Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, not in Moncton. Oh, damn. (laughs) I was like, I've been there. I've been on those swings. It's amazing. (laughs) It's incredible. I can't believe it's been there since 1851. Incredible. (laughs) Same swings. (laughs) The Great Exhibition, as it is often called, uh, was the idea of Prince Albert, so Queen Victoria's husband. Oh, yeah. And is usually considered the first international exhibition of manufactured products. It influenced the development of several aspects of society, including art and design education, international trade and relations, and tourism. This expo was the precedent for many international exhibitions, which would later be called World Expos, that have continued to be held into the present day. The character of world fairs has evolved since 1951. So there's kind of like three distinct eras of world fairs. Okay. <laughs> so initially they're like industrialization right. fairs. So it's it, they're just there to show off like technology and progresses of like science and art. And basically to say like, look how civilized we are. Yeah. They're also very racist. Oh. If I could time travel... Mm-hmm. One of the few events, because you know I'm very anti-time travel. Yeah. Because the past is terrible. It's terrible. It's awful. Everybody's dead. One of the few places I think I'd be willing to go is the <laughs> Chicago's World Fair in oh. 1893. It was fucked. Okay. <laughs> it was crazy. They had all of these like insane expositions. They had so many live quote-unquote specimens. So like human I believe that the Barnum and Bailey Circus was there. That's where he like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think we talk about it in our first live show. It wasn't the Chicago World's Fair. The quintuplets that were born in Canada. This would have been, I think, a little after because there was another Chicago's World Fair in the 1930s. Right. Um, But they had like these five little quintuplets on display. That's really weird Um, and uncomfortable. Yeah, it was wild. So (laughs) part of me really would want to go see that. Or the St. Louis one in 1904. Also crazy. Because they were like, we're going to do the World's Fair and the Olympics at the same time. At the exact same time. (laughs) 1904. And then that was the one where it was like the first, one of the first marathons. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But like they were running on dirt trails. In St. Louis? 
if you ever if you've never heard of the St. Louis Olympics, it's amazing the Olympics did not get canceled after, after the that? 1904 St. Louis oh Olympics. God. So they were poisoning marathon runners with arsenic. Why? <laughs> arsenic was just thought to be something you could give runners as like a stimulant. They also didn't set up water stations just so they could see what happens. Like what happens when we dehydrate people? What? It's insane. Uh, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Murder. This is what I mean when I say the past is terrible. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but thank God we know that arsenic is bad now. <laughs> Once we get into like the late 1930s and early 40s, they kind of change from being about industrialization to more about like cultural exchange. Okay. So it's it's about like building the world of tomorrow and like peace and cultures. Right. And then the final era is more like nation branding. Okay. So it becomes less about inviting other nations to your nation and and more about like, oh, Canada is going to host the World's Fair. It's all going to be about Canada and like what Canada has achieved. But- Montreal is a bit before that. Okay. And so we're going to talk about those kinds of world fairs and like how Montreal came to be the site. So the idea for hosting the 1967 World Exhibition dates all the way back to 1957. So it was 10 years in the making. So a guy by the name of Colonel Sevigny, this is going to be a terrible episode because there's so many French names and I apologize to, to everyone in Quebec. Uh, at the top of okay. this. Um, but basically, <laughs> blanket apology. <laughs> blanket apology to everyone. He was the person who first suggested it, and it was backed by Montreal's mayor, Sarto... Let's go first name basis. Sarto Fournier. Okay. Sarto Fournier is his name, but we're going to call him Sarto. Sarto. First name basis, you're right. He backed the proposal, allowing Canada to make a bid to the Bureau International des Expositions, or the, the BIE, as Ooh. we will call it. <laughs> In May, on May 5th, 1960, uh, in a meeting in Paris, Moscow was awarded the fair after five rounds of voting, eliminating Austria's and then Canada's bid. Wow. In April 1962, however, the Soviets scrapped plans to host the fair due to financial constraints and security concerns. Mm-hmm. So now we went from having 10 years to planning to now we only have five years to plan. Yep. So old when- USSR does it again. <laughs> Montreal's new mayor, uh, Jean Drapeau, lobbied the Canadian government to try again for the fair, which they did. And on November 13th, 1962, the BIE changed the location of the World Exhibition to Canada. And Expo 67 went on to become the second best attended BIE-sanctioned World Exposition after the 1900 fair in Paris. Well, Paris is pretty cool. And Europe is all close together, so. (laughs) Now it is the fourth most attended. It was surpassed by Osaka in 1970 and then Shanghai in 2010. Osaka, really? Yeah. Interesting. So I guess, I mean, they're held 1910. They must still be a thing that happens. I guess so. Several sites were proposed as the main expo grounds. One location that was considered was Mount Royal Park, which if you've been to Montreal, that's the main park in the center of the city. But it was Drapeau's idea to create new islands in the St. Lawrence (laughs) River, which I don't think is how the Heritage Minute shows it. No. Because I don't think either of those guys are the mayor. No. (laughs) Granted, Drapeau probably had engineers working for him who were like, hey... We're, bu- we're building a subway, and that means we have a lot of extra dirt. We should take that dirt and build an island with it. Right. <laughs> 
The choice overcame opposition from Montreal's surrounding municipalities and also prevented land speculation. Expo 67 did not get off to a smooth start, (laughs) as you could probably already tell by the fact that it's delayed by five years. Yeah. In 1963, many top organizing committee officials resigned. (laughs) So one year in, we're like, yeah, I'm done. I can't do this. (laughs) The main reason for the resignation was Mayor Drapeau's choice of the site on new islands to be created around the existing St. Helens Island. And also that the computer program predicted that the event could not possibly be constructed in time. Nice. (laughs) The computer's like... It's impossible. <laughs> and the computer at this point is a person. <laughs> it's just a guy yeah. in a box. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot compute. <laughs> Another more likely reason for the mass resignations <laughs> was that on April 22nd, 1963, the federal liberal government of Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson oh, took power. Lester, Lester, Lester. <laughs> this meant that the former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker's progressive conservative government appointees to the board of directors of the Canadian Corporation for the 1967 World Exhibition were likely forced to resign. So due to political changing of hands, they were like, yeah, you got to go. That's Mr. Diefenbaker. Are we going to the same party? (laughs) Exactly. They all had to leave to go to the same party all at the same time. We're deciding the flag and now we're going to the same party. Let's go. You don't have time for this. Canadian diplomat Pierre Dupuis was named Commissioner General after Diefenbaker appointee Paul Bienvenu. (laughs) Isn't that hello? I think it's welcome. 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 (laughs) He resigned from the post in 1963. One of the main responsibilities of the Commissioner General was to attract other nations to build pavilions at the expo. So a big thing that these are known for is like, United States, come, you can display your things, but also you're responsible for building your nation's pavilion. Exactly, yeah. Dupuis would spend most of 1964 and 1965 soliciting 125 countries, spending more time abroad than in Canada over the course of this year. Dupuis' right-hand man, Robert Fletcher Shaw, the Deputy Commissioner General and Vice President of the Corporation, was with him. So Shaw was a professional engineer and builder and is widely credited for the total building of the exhibition. Huh. <laughs> Which I, I know probably means that he just like oversaw everything. But I am picturing him with one a hammer man. and one nail <laughs> just walking around. <laughs> yeah. It's a good image. Yeah. <laughs> so Dupuy also hired Andrew Naywisser. Naywisser? It's a fun last name. Sure. As the general manager. And the management group became known as Les Deux, or the tough guys. Oh, my God. (laughs) And they were in charge of creating, building, and managing the expo. So the fair ends up going so well that all Les Deux, there were 10 of them, um, they end up being honored by the Canadian government as recipients of the Order of Canada. Whoa. (laughs) Imagine being such a good event planner (laughs) that you get the Order of Canada. You threw an amazing party. Yeah. Order of Canada. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) I did not think you could get the Order of Canada for For like one event. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They they just had no applicants, like no no possible people that year. They were like, uh, well, um, I guess these guys. (laughs) In retrospect, a big part of the success of World 
the World's Fair in 1967 was the cooperation of Canada's French and English-speaking communities. So during this time, that is probably the biggest tension in the country. Going into the 70s, by the end of the 70s, into the 80s and stuff, you're starting to have conversation of separatists and things like that. But this is kind of this moment where French Canada and English Canada really come together. And they bring with them their two best attributes. So one historian put it that the secret to Expo's success was the Quebecois flair and the English-Canadian pragmatism. (laughs) (laughs) So they're nice and fancy. Yeah. (laughs) In May of 1963, a group of prominent Canadian thinkers... That's me and you, buddy. (laughs) Prominent Canadian thinkers. (laughs) Prominent Canadian thinkers met for three days in a club in Montebello, Quebec. (laughs) So they got wasted. The Seigneury Club. They got wasted for three days. (laughs) I have an idea. (laughs) And their idea was the theme called Man and His World, which is what the Montreal World's Fair uh, theme would wind up being. Okay. Uh, Also, Terre des Hommes in French. So one of these thinkers was Gabrielle Roy, and she wound up being responsible for basically, like, writing up the pamphlet that they explains... They let a lady think? Oh, yeah. Shut up. She got to be one of Canada's thinkers. I don't believe it. <laughs> and so she explains what this theme is, and it's what it's meant to be. Okay. So the theme name came from a book written by a guy named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Okay. So in the book, the, the original book... It's so filled with dreams and hopes for the future. Antoine writes of how deeply moved he was by flying for the first time by night alone over Argentina. He happened to notice a few flickering lights scattered below him and across an almost empty plain. They twinkled here and there, alone like stars. In truth, being made aware of our own solitude can give us insight into the solitude of others. It can even cause us to gravitate towards one another as if to lessen our distress. Without this inevitable solitude, would there be any fusion at all, any tenderness between human beings? Moved as he was by a heightened awareness of the solitude of all creation and by the human need for solidarity, Antoine found a phrase to express his anguish and his hope that was as simple as it was rich in meaning. And because that phrase was chosen many years later to be the governing idea of Expo 67, a group of people from all walks of life was invited by the corporation to reflect upon it and see how it could be given tangible forms. That's really nice. Yeah. So that's really pretty. I like that. So like man in his world is given to these thinkers and they kind of come up with like how we can present Hmm. that. I like that. So construction started on August 13th, 1963, with an elaborate ceremony hosted by Mayor Drapeau on barges anchored in the St. Lawrence River. I think (laughs) because the islands aren't done yet. Right, where the islands are going to (laughs) go. Ceremonially, construction began when Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson pulled a lever that signaled a front-end loader to dump the first batch of fill to no. enlarge Ile St. Helene. No. <laughs> and Quebec Premier Jean Lesage spread the fill with a bulldozer. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, I just imagine they're also in, like, suits, you know? That's exactly what and I'm And all picturing. the actual workers are like, all right. And it's like the camera pans from like one to the other in one connected shot. It's like button, bulldozer, da da da. Yep, the button's also not attached to anything. Absolutely not. It's just like a signal. And then someone actually does it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just for show. (laughs) 
Of the 25 million tons of fill needed to construct the island, 10 to 12 percent was coming from Montreal's Metro's excavations, Okay, uh, a public works project that was already under construction before Expo was awarded to Montreal, which is interesting because I feel like the Heritage Minute makes it seem like all of the dirt was coming from the Metro, but only like 10 percent. Where are they getting the rest of the fill? Oh, yeah. <laughs> The remain well, here we go. The oh. remainder of the fill came from the quarries on Montreal and the South Shore. However, even with that, it was insufficient. And so <laughs> bodies of water on both islands. We're gonna say bodies. <laughs> <laughs> then they just started the bodies of Irish orphans. <laughs> <laughs> they just needed to build it up a little higher. <laughs> So, because they didn't have enough dead people to build these <laughs> islands, they built they built lakes and canals to reduce the amount of oh fill they God. needed. So they're just like donuts. <laughs> Not dead bodies. Got it. No. While construction continued, the land rising out of Montreal's harbor uh, was not owned by the Expo Corporation yet. So they're building this island, but they don't own it. Um, and after the final mounds of earth were completed on the island, the grounds that would hold the fair were officially transferred from the city of Montreal to the corporation in June 20th, 1964. That's good. So we have 1,042 days to build everything for the expo. Yeah. To get the expo built in time, um, they used a new project management tool known as the critical path method okay. uh, on April 28th, 1967 opening day. Everything was ready with the exception of one pavilion, which was habitat 67, which was then displayed as a work in progress. Nice. <laughs> Building and enlarging the islands, along with the new Concord Bridge, which was just being built simultaneously. Right. And then in addition to the bridge, they're also building a boat pier. It cost more than St. Lawrence Seaway Project did only five years earlier. Um, this was even before any buildings or infrastructure were constructed. So this is an incredibly expensive project. And time consuming. <laughs> With the initial phase of construction completed, it is easy to see why the budget for the exhibition was going larger than anyone expected. In the fall of 1963, the Expo's general manager presented the master plan and the preliminary budget of $167 million. 67. Oh. <laughs> uh, it Did would, they do that on purpose? I don't know, but it would balloon to over $439 million. <laughs> Yeah, that, that doesn't have any 67 in it. <laughs> The plan and the budget had narrowly been passed by Pearson's federal cabinet. Um, it passed by one vote. Um, oh. when it, then it was officially submitted on December 23rd, 1963. We also, because there's a lot of things that go into this project, obviously. I mean, obviously you have to pay for the construction of everything, but then you also need to pay for things like a logo. Yeah. Which the logo is like pictographic men sort of holding hands in friendship. Yeah. If you've seen that like wreath looking yeah. thing that is the logo for expo but yeah like you've got to pay like designers and stuff to there's so many things that go into a small event planning <laughs> yeah. like and to they, think and that they don't have canva like no it's hard <laughs> they don't have canva they don't have social media they also have an official theme song oh my god which is hey friend say friend <laughs> or in french un jour un jour <laughs> which are not the same thing at all. is like one day. 
yeah. one day. But in English, it's one K-friend, day say friend. more. <laughs> Lame Miz pops out. <laughs> Apparently, complaints were made about the sustainability of the song, as its lyrics mention neither Montreal nor the Expo. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> They're like, this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's but, got a good beat, though. You know what? Despite all the hurdles... The official opening was held on Thursday afternoon of April 27, 1967. The ceremonies were an invitation-only event that were held at Place des Nations. Canada's governor general proclaimed the exhibition open after the Expo Flame was ignited by Prime Minister Pearson. On hand were over 7,000 media and invited guests, which included 53 heads of state. Ooh. Over 1,000 reporters covered the event, and it was broadcast in color, which was, like, very Technicolor. Which is a thing. Like, I th- when I think Expo, I do think very, like, bright and yeah, colorful. color. Expo 67 opened to the public the following morning with a space-age-style countdown. No. <laughs> is this, like, the clock that, like, keeps closing? Like, do you know I, what I mean? Yeah. Like, the... I think so. And this is, like, the the height of the space race between yes. the U.S. and the Soviets. We haven't been to the moon yet, so... Obviously. Yeah, 67. We're so close. So close. Yeah. A capacity crowd participated in an atomic clock-controlled countdown that ended when the exhibition opened precisely at 9.30 in the morning. An estimated crowd of between 310,000 and 335,000 visitors showed up for opening day. Nobody was there clicking. Like, <laughs> I just imagine a guy yeah. with like seven clickers, like, oh, oh no, oh no, God. Uh, <laughs> he's got them, he's got them in his like elbow. <laughs> and they, they expected a crowd of only 200,000. So they almost doubled oh, the yeah. amount of people that showed up. So he was freaking out. That's why they don't know <laughs> how many people were there. <laughs> on opening day, there was considerable comment on the uniform of the hostess from the UK pavilion. Oh, so pray tell. Because the UK pavilion was like, you know what's really in right now? Mini skirts. Oh. So all of the UK pavilion ladies, which they're, the mini skirt had just been designed. The year before it had been popularized by Mary Quant. Mm. Um, and so all of the like British pavilion hostesses are scandalized. Yep. And the men just can't control themselves. <laughs> And, of course, the Canadian Post was like, well, we need a stamp. Of course. So they released a commemorative stamp God. same day. <laughs> the Canadian Post loves a good stamp. So the World's Fair, I mean, it featured art galleries, an opera, ballet and theater companies, orchestras, jazz groups, famous on, Canadian pop musicians. All on islands. <laughs> In Montreal. Many pavilions had music and performances where visitors could find free concerts and shows, including Ukrainian shumka dancers. Oh, are they the ones who like, who like pop their knees out, like stick their legs out, like squat I don't know. and go like. I always associate that with da, Russia. Da, da, da. Oh yeah, that's Russia. But, you know, I feel like there's a lot of shared traditions. I feel like there's some overlap there. But maybe I'm just super culturally unaware. You never know. Not that I'm equating the Ukraine to Russia, even though Russia would do that all the time. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But not this white girl from Canada. (laughs) There was also Canada's first puppetry festival at the Expo. (laughs) Love a good puppet show. Oh, God. A little marionette action. 
There was also an amusement park, which tends to be like the lasting legacy of the fair. A lot of people associate it with like the rides and the booths, um, and they became permanent. Hell yeah. So I've been there. La Ronde amusement been there, park. Yeah. Done that, rode the coaster. So when the expo fairgrounds closed nightly around 10 p.m., visitors could still visit La Ronde, which closed at like 2.30 in the morning. Which is crazy. It's pretty epic. I think it still has crazy hours like that. The expo was internationally very recognizable as well. It was on the Ed Sullivan show. Hmm. Um, you could see stars at like discussing the show, like the Supremes. Oh, <laughs> ladies. Another attraction was the Canadian Armed Forces Tattoo. So, oh, you know. The fair was also visited by vi- many notable figures, including Canada's monarch, Elizabeth II. Oh, the queen! Um, Princess Grace of Monaco. Oh, yeah, Grace Kelly. Uh, Jackie uh, Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy visited. Oh, Miss Onassis. The Emperor of Ethiopia. Don't know who that uh, is. Charles de Gaulle, Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby, <laughs> no way. Harry Belafonte. No. There were also musicians like uh, Thelonious Monk, The Grateful Dead, uh, Tiny Tim. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Can we just stop? How old are The Grateful Dead? They're the 60s. Huh. 1960s. They're like psychedelic, I think. And The Tokens and Jefferson's Airplane were all, they would show up. They also did shows. It's a party. Yeah. So despite its successes, there were problems, Uh, particularly the Front de Liberation de Quebec militants had threatened to disrupt the exhibition. Why? (laughs) Dude, everyone's just having fun. But they were inactive during this period. So they had made threats, but nothing ever happened. Vietnam War protesters also picketed during the opening day. American President Lyndon B. Johnson visited and was very much a focus of the protesters. Of course. Threats that the Cuba pavilion would be destroyed by anti-Castro forces Mm. uh, were also not carried out, but made. And in June, an Arab-Israeli conflict in the Middle East flared up again, which is called the Six Days War, which resulted in Kuwait pulling out of the fair in protest of the way Western nations were dealing with the conflict. Okay. Also, the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, caused an international incident on July 24th when he addressed thousands at in Montreal City Hall by yelling out the now infamous words, Vive Montreal, Vive oh. le Québec, Vive le Québec libre. Yeah. So we have some separatist things already happening. Happening. In September, the most serious problem turned out to be a 30-day transit strike. By the end of July, estimates predicted that the expo would exceed six mil- 60 million visitors, but the strike cut deeply into the attendance and the revenue figures, just as the fair was cruising to its conclusion. Another major problem beyond the control of expo's management was guest accommodations and lodging. Log Expo um, was created to direct visitors to accommodations in the Montreal area, which usually meant that visitors would stay at the homes of people they were unfamiliar with oh, like rather than traditional hotels or motels. Yeah. The Montreal populace opened their homes to thousands of guests. Yeah. Unfortunately for some visitors, they were sometimes sent to less than respectable establishments where operators took full advantage of the tourist trade. Yeah. So eventually the management of this was taken away from Log Expo and then was managed by the Quebec Provincial Authority. Still, Expo would get most of the blame for directing visitors to these establishments. Okay. But overall, a visit to Expo from outside Montreal was still seen as a bargain. So I think it's just a way to be like, oh, you don't want to stay at a hotel? Well, you can stay lodging with these people and it's right. a lot cheaper. Um, but yeah. 
The original Airbnb. The, the OG Airbnb, yeah. yes. Expo 67 closed on a Sunday afternoon um, on October 29th, 1967. Mm. The fair had been scheduled to close two days earlier. However, a two-day extension was granted by the BIE and allowed it to continue over the weekend. On the final day, uh, nearly a quarter of a million visitors arrived of the more than 50 million who attended the fair in total. Wow. At the time, Canada's population was only 20 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> this set the per capita record for a world's fair. That's crazy. But that's crazy. So that means like, <laughs> I mean, obviously you probably have like double dippers from Canada. Right. More than double the population of Canada visited Canada's world fair. Yeah, that's crazy. Starting at 2 p.m., the Expo Commissioner officiated over the medal ceremony in which participating nations and organizations received gold and silver medallions and over the ceremony in which national flags were lowered in reverse order to which they had been raised, with Canada's flag lowered first and Nigeria's lowered last. Okay. After Prime Minister Pearson doused the Expo flame, the Governor-General closed the Expo at Place des Nations with a mournful, spontaneous farewell. <laughs> he mournful said, spontaneity. The best. The best kind <laughs> of spontaneity. <laughs> he said, it is with great regret that I declare that the Universal and International Exhibition of 1967 has come to an official end. All the rides and the minerail were shut down by 3.50 p.m., and the expo grounds were closed at 4 p.m., with the last Expo Express train leaving the Place des Cures at that time. Mm. There was a firework display that went on for an hour after the concluding event. Wow. So Expo performed financially better than expected. Um, expo was intended to have a deficit shared by the federal, provincial, and municipal levels of government. Significantly better than expected attendance revenue reduced the debt to well below the original estimate. The final financial statistics in the Canadian dollar, there was a revenue of over $200 million, um, and it was a cost of over $400 million. So they ended up managed to cut the deficit in half. Which So they're still in debt by like $200 million. Right. <laughs> but I guess they were like... That is way better than we had anticipated. Yep. <laughs> After the Man and His World summer exhibitions were discontinued, most of the pavilions and the remnants were demolished between 1985 and 1987. Um, and the former site of Expo 67 on St. Helens Island and Notre Dame Island was incorporated into a municipal park that's run by the city of Montreal. Mm -hmm. So the park, which is named Parc des Îles, opened in 1992 during Montreal's 350th anniversary. In 2000, the park was renamed to Parc Jean Drapeau after the mayor, Jean Drapeau, who mm -hmm. had brought the exhibition to Montreal. In 2006, the corporation that runs the park also changed its name from Société <laughs> du Parc des Îles to the Société du Parc de Jean Drapeau, which <laughs> okay. makes sense. That's um, how it should be. <laughs> today, very little remains of Expo. However, there are several prominent buildings that remain, so... The American Pavilion's metal lattice skeleton. So if you think of Disney World, yeah. like their pavilions. Yeah. The, the American one, the, the Epcot Center, like oh, that's yeah. what the American one looks like. And that is today Montreal's biosphere. Yeah. So if you've been to Montreal's like natural I've been in the history biosphere. Museum. Yeah. There's penguins. Yeah. And fish and butterflies. Super cool. It's super fun. Yeah. That's the old American Pavilion. Oh. 
Very cool. I'm sure there was a sign that said that somewhere, but I mean, there were also penguins, so. And that building that um, wasn't finished when they opened, Epitaph yeah. 67, is now a condominium re- residence. Oh, very nice. Um, the France and Quebec pavilions are now interconnected and now oh, are the cool. Montreal Casino. <laughs> that's fitting. <laughs> There's also just a bunch of really strange stories about some of the other pavilions because, like, they can't keep all of them. But, like, so, for instance, the Czechoslovakian pavilion was designed to be disassembled and sold. So, like, when they built it, it was designed that they could take it apart and sell it. Okay. And it attracted interest from the province of Newfoundland. (laughs) (laughs) Though its bid was not preferred at first. (laughs) It's like like a puzzle, boys. It's like a puzzle. (laughs) We'll bring it back here. We'll put it back together. We love Czech people. <laughs> this is such a strange story. <laughs> this is the weirdest story. Okay. okay. So initially, Newfoundland's bid is not preferred. How? But on September 5th, 1967, there was a Czech flight that crashed during takeoff at Gander International Airport. Oh, my God. And many people were saved by the residents of Gander. Of course. Which may have led to Newfoundland's purchase offer finally being accepted. All right. So, so like, initially, they're like, we don't want your bid, but... You did save a bunch of our lives at Gander. So, uh, okay. <laughs> so the government of Newfoundland bought this pavilion. Um, it was assembled at Grand Falls and is now the Grand Falls Art and Culture Center. Huh. Um, now it's called the Gordon Piznet Center for Arts. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> they also purchased the Yugoslavian Pavilion. Newfoundland? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a triangular building that was converted to the Provincial Siemens Museum in Grand Bank. They were like, oh, Joe's grandma's cousin's brother-in-law really likes Czechoslovakia and, and, Yugoslavia. and Yugoslavia. So let's just try and buy those things to make Jeff feel good. Don't worry. <laughs> we just want to buy your pavilion so we can convert it into a semen museum. Isn't that exciting? Thrilling. Like, the Czech people don't know a lot of English. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you also had these vehicles that were little water buses, nice. like ferry shuttles. They were decommissioned and they ended up in Charlottetown in Prince Edward Island huh. where it gave harbor tours. And then it later moved to Nova Scotia and then New Brunswick. And then it was subsequently renovated and returned to uh, Charlottetown. Very good. <laughs> so in a political and cultural context, Expo 67 is seen as a landmark moment in Canadian history. The following year, as a salute to the cultural impact of the exhibition, Montreal's Major League Baseball team, mm. the Expos, which are now the Washington Nationals, was named after the event. 1967 was also the year that the French Prime Minister came and made that speech mm. about a free Quebec. Um, this stirred up a lot of feelings feelings yeah. in Quebec, <laughs> and they're like, you're right. We could be Libre Vive. Quebec. Vive <laughs> Quebec. So much so that Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson had to come out with his own statement. Uh, he said, Canadians do not need to be liberated. Canada will remain united and will reject any effort to destroy her unity. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Jesus, Charles. Mary and Joseph. <laughs> In the years that followed, the tensions between English and French-speaking communities would continue. As an early 21st century homage to the fair, um, there were some satirists who wrote a full-length musical set in Expo 67 called The Paris of America. That sounds incredible, and I'd love to see it. <laughs> Me too! It ran for six sold-out weeks in <laughs> Montreal in the April and May of 2003. I want them to revamp oh, that. Oh my god, it. that sounds fantastic. <laughs> 
Expo 67 is still one of the most successful world exhibitions and is still regarded fondly by many Canadians. In Montreal, 1967 is often referred to the last good year before economic <laughs> decline. Um, so, I mean, because after that you have Quebec sovereign di- yeah. sovereignists coming up and a deteriorating infrastructure and political apathy yeah. um, was becoming really common. Yeah. In 2007, a new group, Expo 17, was looking to bring a smaller scale BIE sanctioned exposition to Montreal again as the 50th anniversary celebration. Okay. And it also would have fallen on Canada 150. So oh, yeah. Canada's national celebration. Expo 17 hoped a new World's Fair would regenerate the spirit of Canada's landmark and centennial project. However, I do not believe it I don't came it to happened. fruition. But yeah, I think that says a lot to be like something so fondly remembered that you want to like do the event again yeah it's, it's kind of strange a little bit but i mean and i know that we're in canada so obviously like we know more about expo 67 than other world fairs but it really is like everybody's grandma and parents are like oh yeah expo 67 like everybody's got a glass or a mug or a plate or yeah. a or a small metal spoon in their house that is from expo 67 yeah um yeah so i mean i think it's and think 67 it's, would have ca- been canada's 100th anniversary as well centennial yeah um centennial so yep so yeah it's it falls it fell on a really important year it's not long after that you would have had like the montreal olympics and exactly. stuff so it's yeah. that it really i think it's what made montreal an international city for in sure. a lot of people's eyes like yeah. i think toronto now more so but for a long time i think people saw montreal as canada's like cultural hub oh for sure yeah. i mean if you're from quebec you still see montreal <laughs> as canada's cultural hub i <laughs> love montreal yeah uh, if i could live in another yeah. city in Canada, it would, be, it would Montreal. be Montreal. If the French issue wasn't so prominent, Quite an you can get by speaking English. It's just hard oh, to find work, especially and stuff. in Montreal, though. Oh yeah, like it, it Montreal is the most so. bilingual city. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah Anyways, that's one of my favorite heritage minutes, and it's such a fun. It's such like, a good. It's one. such a strange little. It's really interesting when countries have to perform their identity for other people. <laughs> yeah, you're basically like, what do you want the world? to remember you as well and we've talked about this before because going to disney world and going to the epcot pavilions you get to the canadian pavilion and it's a bunch of people in doskins and davy crockett hats with like with like wooden snowshoes up on the walls and totem poles everywhere canada is such a cultural mosaic in our makeup Mm-hmm. that when you try to identify something that is solely Canadian, it gets so gimmicky. Because yeah. it's like, let's just coat ourselves in maple syrup, uh, live in an igloo, and ride a moose to school. And it's like, that's not Canada. And so I think that it's important to have events like the Expo 67 to be like, you know, Canada doesn't have to be distinctly one thing. We can be all of these things. Yeah, I think it says a lot that it's so fondly remembered yeah. by oh, so many definitely. people. Yeah, that was a good one, buddy. Thanks. I liked it. Well, thanks for another awesome episode, buddy. Expo no 67. That was very cool. I like that one a lot. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, maybe, thank you for hopping in and getting to know us and our fun little show. For those of you who have been here the whole time, thank you. We appreciate you guys so much. And always feel free to reach out, send us a direct message on our social media accounts, or send us an email to minimumpodcast at gmail.com.
and make sure you rate and review the podcast, which you can really only do on Apple Podcasts. So everyone should abandon all other platforms, go to Apple Podcasts, and then rate and review. It is the biggest support to the podcast when you do that. It gets us in the ears of way more listeners. If you haven't gotten enough of us, you can check out our whole back catalog. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms, or you can find all of our episodes at minutewomenpodcast.ca. Bye. Bye. Bye.